Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John Norman is the head of FX and Commodities and International Rates Research at J.P. Morgan. Joins us from our studios in London. John, great to speak with you once again. Let me start by asking you about the the fallout from the the effects of the election in France last weekend. When you look at currencies, when you look look at the FX space in Europe, particularly on the heels of that, what kind of a role has it played here over the last five days? So I think um, the second round vote didn't have much of an impact on currencies because it was sort of a done deal after first round elections that, that Macron would be the, the president. So you did see a move up between first round and second round. It, it doesn't surprise me that second round didn't really deliver any any follow through. When you look at uh, at Washington and all that's happening there, very little happening on the Hill with regard to policy, very little happening with tax reform, very little happening with uh, health care reform. And when you look at the legislative calendar, it's very compressed. There are, I think, 30-plus days left uh, for Congress to do something. Uh, what effect is that going to have, uh, do you think? Uh, w- what sort of likelihood are you pricing in there for, for some sort of tax reform package or, uh, or, or, or health care reform package? So I put uh, very low likelihood on on both of these. I just think they're they're complicated issues, and and you have essentially a divided government, and that the Republican Party is is not a cohesive block, and there's uh, not uh, a similar view on these policy issues between the White House and and, and Congress. So uh, we're our, our forecast hasn't changed at all as a function of. Um, the fiscal promises and um, and some of these ambitions, uh, but at the same time, you know, the bar is pretty low. If if anything does happen on the fiscal side, it it comes at a time when the economy is is at full employment in our minds, and that just gives more of an upward bias towards rates and and, and to the dollar. Has your outlook for action in Washington changed uh, at all with all of the distractions, with the latest news here about the the FBI director? Uh, have, have you changed anything when it comes to your forecast? No, no, we haven't, because actually we we started out quite skeptical that this administration would achieve much on the on the economic policy side, and that's a view we've had essentially since the election, because we we just never really thought of Trump as a Republican, and and we sort of acknowledged that the Republican Party itself is uh, isn't very cohesive between the various camps. So other people may be downgrading their expectations. Uh, given all of the distractions that have emerged under this new administration, but we, we started out quite skeptical several months ago. You have in your your latest note here that May is living up to its reputation as a as a graveyard for high beta uh, FX. Why why is that the case? Why is May always uh, a, a dog of a month? People will tell you it's because uh, clients don't like to hold positions into the summer. I, uh-huh. I, I don't think there's any empirical <laughs> proof of that. The only empirical proof is that there's some um, tendency of markets to sell off, whether that's equities or high-yield currencies, in, in May, and that's kind of repeating itself. Help me with the, the commodity space right now. I mentioned gold at the top. Let's move, move past gold to, to other commodities. Uh, a number of guests we've talked to over the last week have told us that uh, the big motivator here is still what's going on uh, in China. When you look at commodities in particular, what do you see as a, as a driving force? So there's two, and they affect uh, sectors in different ways. So China 
and the credit tightening that that economy is experiencing right now is is the number one driver of the base metals, whereas expectations around this OPEC summit on May 25th is the number one driver of, of, of oil. So I think you can have divergence between those two sectors of, of a commodity index, depending on whether you think um, OPEC is going to tighten and, and how much longer you believe this, this credit crunch in China is going to persist. Do you think that there'll be a continuation of that of that agreement? I wonder sort of what your your outlook is for the future of OPEC. I remember a few months back we were debating the efficacy of or the importance of continued importance of OPEC going forward. Has it uh, reestablished that with this production freeze? I, I think it's going to be rolled simply because the the budgetary incentives that um, created consensus around uh, an agreement last November is still in place, meaning countries just can't um, generate sufficient revenue if, if oil is below $50 a barrel. And and that, to me, is the number one reason to think that this uh, deal will be extended. It, it's right to be skeptical about the longevity of a deal because history suggests that these accords uh, only restrain production for a year and a half, two years. But at the same time, we're still early in this process. The, the first accord mm-hmm. was only five months ago. So I, I don't think it's now is the time to be skeptical. I, I'd be much more skeptical around the turn of the year. John, I think my co-host has ambled into the studio there with you. Tom Keane, on the tail end of your trip to London. Tail end. Uh, finishing up. We'll see where finishing we strong. go from here. We'll be in New York on Monday. Really looking forward to that, uh, uh, David. We welcome all of you worldwide. Our studios in London. Uh, I drove by, uh, David, our new building. It is really getting occupancy or whatever the word Terrific, is. Yeah. We're getting like close. It's, it's just gorgeous over by Mansion House. Went by that in the surveillance limo uh, <laughs> last night. Bloomberg Surveillance <laughs> Worldwide in London, in New York. With us, John Norman of J.P. Morgan. In the time that we've got uh, left with you, uh, John, I, I, I really want to talk about the spirit of this London. I was really struck yesterday by Governor Carney doing, is he supposed to do as a public official? Well, you know, we may see a slowdown. I see cranes still all over London. It's, you know, it's, it's a different kind of, it's a construction project than New York City. I don't know if you've enjoyed cross-town traffic in New York City yes. recently. That, that's a sport. Is there still a boom going on in London? There's a building boom in London. Unclear John, is this your first excess- time on radio? Get closer to the mic. Come oh, sorry. on. I'm here. Okay. Up against the mic. Yeah. So there's there's a building boom in place, unclear that it's excessive relative to the demand, because m- most of the analysis suggests that the UK needs to generate about 200,000 households a year, uh, or 200,000 new homes a year to keep up with demand. I don't know that when uh, you look around London, you'd say that this is excessive. What kind of sterling do we want? Or I guess I'd almost look at euro sterling and that I get there's a, there's a euro optimal for Germany. There's a euro optimal for France. What is a sterling optimal for the United Kingdom? I think it would be a rate that's actually lower than it is now because the, the U.K. still runs, uh, let, let's put it 10% lower because the U.K. Wow. still runs a decent uh, uh, external deficit versus the rest of the world, and it's going through a very challenging growth period until there's some clarity around Brexit. So as the as the Brexit debate hangs over the economy, I think it justifies a, a weaker currency, actually. You know, I, I was asking Tom yesterday the degree to which, as he walked around, he saw signs of this snap election, which is coming up on June the 8th. And, and I think, Tom, you said that uh, you were surprised at how little it was being talked about or how few signs uh, you saw. John Norman, it, is this playing a big role going forward? Is this kind of being seen as a as a done deal, a formality, or or do you expect there to be, uh, do you expect this to take up more of the conversation here as we approach that date? So I think because um, this 
there were some expectations that a snap election would be would be called. It's not it's not entirely a surprise. Um, and also the main issue which is being debated whether or not she will have a may will have a, a, a stronger mandate and this will uh, allow her to negotiate mm -hmm. more credibly with with the Europeans. Th that issue is one that's going to play out over the course of several years. So it, it may be um, uh, an an important right. victory for her, but the macro results wouldn't be known for years. That's why I don't think this is a a significant market issue. One final question. It is quiet out there. How do you avoid losing money in FX when it's quiet? Do you just go away? No, I think you need to avoid being highly exposed to carry, which is the same. Uh, Explain that to our non-carry audience. So the idea is that when volatility is very low, generally investors like to earn yield because they feel like mm -hmm. there's very little that could You get uh, into the drug of that. Finance. Exactly. Yeah. And since vol is mean reverting, this is just one of the few, you know, persistent uh, uh, patterns that we see in financial yeah. markets. Uh, it's only a question of time yeah. before vol goes higher and high yield currencies go down. We'll play Carry On My Wayward Son as we yeah. go to the hour as well for John Norman. We need a little Kansas here in London. John Norman, thank you so much with Foreign Exchange with J.P. Morgan. We particularly appreciate Mr. Norman's attendance on the uh, Gurakin tour. He was in New York recently. Yes, yeah, great to see good him. Good to see him. You know, he could have said he could have said no, David, but he didn't. No, he showed up here, which is a good thing. It's we like coercive that. power. That Very you have powerful. Time. Yes. With Roger Boodle, Mr. Boodle will be coming up um, as well. Uh, should we be grandstanding and showboating today, David? Uh, that is. That <laughs> I was joking with uh, with why you went before the show. Yes, yeah, some showboating. Going on in that interview with uh, with Lester Holt yesterday, uh, President Trump saying yeah. that our former FBI director was doing too much yeah. of that. Uh, some critics saying that's the pot yeah. calling the kettle black. Uh, we'll, we'll, look, we'll, <laughs> we'll look for some headlines off that. I believe Mr. Holt and NBC are giving it the Today Show treatment. Maybe yes. there will be something new here in the coming minutes. David Gura in New York, Tom Keen uh, in London, and uh, Tom, I know that uh, one of our favorite guests has joined you there in the studios in our London bureau. Uh, absolutely. This is a joy. Roger Boodle, and I want to spend some time here because people go, okay, Roger Boodle, we know he's going to say, et cetera, et cetera. He has one of the most twisted paths <laughs> in United Kingdom economics with some real academic uh, abilities out of Oxford, his work for years at HSBC. And a lot of people would have retired out and done whatever Roger Boodle does in his free time. He didn't. He went out and formed Capital Economics. They won the exceptionally prestigious Wolfson Prize. Uh, a huge deal when Capital Economics won that and has moved on to advising various and sundry conservative uh, governments. Mr. Boodle joins us now. Some of you may read uh, his opinion as it is in the Telegraph. How conservative is Prime Minister May? What of the 28 flavors of conservative is the Prime Minister? Well, of course, we don't know. I think the signs are she's not very conservative. And interestingly, she's not pushing conservatism in her attempt to appeal to people across the spectrum, the voters across the spectrum, in Britain. You know, she's much more popular than her party. And the whole, yeah. the, the whole offer seems to be, vote for me, I'm Theresa May, not vote for me, I'm a Conservative Prime Minister. Well, vote for me, I'm Theresa May, and maybe the titles are done. And of course, we saw that within the French election as well. Separate out the Tory party right now a year and well, it's almost a year on from, from Brexit, isn't it? We come up on a, a one-year anniversary. 
Yeah, well, the Conservative Party is split on a number of different issues. Of course, it has been split on Brexit because large numbers of Conservative MPs did not want the Brexit vote. Uh, Conservatives in the country were uh, pretty much not united, but overwhelmingly in mm -hmm. favour of Brexit. I think the real chasm in the Conservative Party is between those people who would describe themselves as essentially Thatcherite, who right. want to continue with the legacy of Mrs. Thatcher, go further, indeed, uh, on the one hand, and on yeah. the other, people who are more centrists, they call themselves One Nation Tories, following right. Disraeli in the 19th century, but you know, more communitarian, less competition, right. less keen on lower taxes. The problem is, uh, Roger, it's lost in translation, because the only thing David Gurr and I know about Disraeli is we love Disraeli gears at Cream and Eric Clapton a few years ago. <laughs> Go. David Gura, <laughs> jump in here, please. Roger, let me ask you about post-partisanship. Uh, the fact that we've seen in France uh, a winner who is a, a, from a new nascent political party. Uh, here in the U.S., it seems like the role of party is being diminished as we look at the composition of the House of Representatives, all the factions within the Republican Party. And from what you're saying about uh, Theresa May uh, and the conservatives there, are we moving beyond party sort of more globally than, uh, than just here in the U.S.? I think we probably are. And it's about time, too. I mean, lots of people are bemoaning all this and saying it uh, shows some sort of crisis in democracy. I, I rather think it shows the opposite, actually. It's uh, really pretty healthy that we're seeing people coming from outside the conventional party system and bending the rules, bending all the categories, uh, appealing directly to the people. Now, of course, it may well be that there's going to be some pronounced disillusion either in the States or in France or Britain or whatever, with this new category of leader. I think that's quite possible. And then we'll have to see how the system reacts. But at the moment, I think this is really pretty good. What role is the, the WTO going to play here in 2017, 2018? I spoke with the Secretary of Commerce here in the U.S., Wilbur Ross, and it sounds like he has some uh, disdain for or disagreement with how it's run or how it has been run. He wants there to be more enforcement, et cetera, uh, et cetera. And I imagine you're dealing with the same issues there uh, in the U.K. Is it going to take on a different shape, do you think? Well, I hope so, because if Britain doesn't get a deal with the EU, and I think there's a fair chance that that will happen, then it will be relying on the WTO. And the WTO has been a pretty moribund organisation, sleepy, for quite some time. A lot of people in Britain, in the know, hope that Britain's going to reinvigorate it. Well, that may well happen, but actually Britain's going to be dependent on it. So uh, it's pretty important. Well, then, uh, let's, let's do this quickly and then come back, uh, Roger, if we... We could, if Britain, quote unquote, doesn't get a deal, does the price of Paul Roger champagne go up? <laughs> uh, I don't know, and no one knows, because we don't know whether we're going to impose tariffs on Paul Roger champagne and indeed everything else. <laughs> this is the, presumably we won't impose tariffs. This is the only question of We're on getting some intel on the duty-free uh, shopping. The by the way, there's something much better than that champagne, which is English sparkling wine. I can recommend you should have it. It's much better. Wins all sorts of <laughs> blind-tasting competitions. The, the big question for Britain is going to be, should we impose tariffs or should we not? Uh, the EU will have its own decision, but for us this is a tricky one. And don't forget, under WTO rules, whatever decision we make, We've got to apply across the board okay. to all countries. Churchill just rolled over in Westminster yeah. when Roger Bullock yeah. took shots at Paul Roger. That's what I know. Uh, Paul Roger, that was uh, when Sir Winston's favorite champagne, yeah. to say the least. We will continue. It's your wine tour on Bloomberg Surveillance in New York and London. With Roger Boodle, stay with us. This is Bloomberg. With us in our London studios, 
Roger Boodle, who has a terrific and eclectic experience in economics and political analysis. David Gurr in New York. I'm Tom Keene uh, in London. Roger, you studied at Oxford, and I believe John Hicks was the hero of so many at one time and place. Do the Hicksian models still work, or is our financial and fixed income mess and crisis and odd nominal in real yields so much so that ISLM doesn't work anymore? Well, the Hicksian model is still taught, and I think that's pretty incredible. He supervised me, by the way, for a time, so I knew him. Um, incredible. Written in 1937, I think it's always had some pretty big gaps in it, quite frankly. I'm a Keynesian through and through, and I think especially at times of real crisis, you can't get away from the psychology that uh, Keynes placed so much emphasis on. Now, of course, we are gradually getting away from the financial crisis now. We're moving back towards normal times. I think in that sort of environment, something like the Hicksian framework will again be relevant. What are those normal times going to, to look like uh, as, as our sense of normalcy changed we'll be in light of all that we've been? We'll be older, exactly. As, as our sense of normalcy changed as a result of that crisis? Well, I think that's got to be true. Um, I think we'll probably get back to something like 3% interest rates. Of course, that's a lot lower than was normal before. I doubt whether we'll get back to 4 or 5, which people used to think was normal. I suspect for a very long time. You could never be sure about these things, of course. You really can never be sure. I mean, the onset of this era of very, very low interest rates came as a massive surprise to people. And I think we've all got to be prepared for the unexpected. But I would be surprised if we get much well, above 3. We love different guests and different views. And David, we've done that today. We had Professor Steve Keen of Kingston yeah. on yesterday, who tilts towards disequilibrium and a, a bit of a Marxist tinge to him as well. <laughs> Roger, help us with a certitude that we get to equilibrium, or as Lord Desai of LSE or Steve Keen would say, I'm sorry, it is a world of disequilibrium. Mm. Can, or can we have both? Well, uh, I think equilibrium is an important concept for economists to use when thinking about a framework, but the world's never in equilibrium, frankly, uh, and most assuredly not now. It's a truism. Uh, people are always saying, oh, I've never known the world quite so uncertain. It's always been uncertain, actually. Um, but I'm tempted to say it's more uncertain now. It's really interesting. You've got the emergence from the financial crisis and the beginnings of the move towards higher interest rates coinciding, I think, with the onset of a new European crisis coming over the next year or two, uh, and then, of course, the development of robotics and AI coming along on the supply side. The next five or ten years are going to be uh, disequilibrium on steroids. Roger Boodle, thank you so much. Yes, I look forward to, to your you. next work in The Telegraph. Honored to have you um, here. Really, I, I tell you, David, it's just great to go from Steve Keen to John Norman of J.P. Morgan to Roger Boodle. It mixes it up, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's your takeaway from this trip, Tom? You were well, asking, gonna, you're asking Peter Elliott about curry last night. We don't have to talk about yeah, food. but we're uh, doing five things you need to know, but the answer is London. I'm sorry, London's London. I don't for a minute buy this, OMG, we're going to lose all these jobs to Europe. I just don't buy yeah. it. I could be wrong. I mean, we could talk another hour to Roger Boodle uh, about it, but I, I'm sorry. I just... It's amazing to be on the streets of Paris and the differential there from the streets of London. Uh, you, you can't talk about it. It's not video. You just got to feel it. There's a huge, the Anglo-American structure is sharply different than what we see 
in the theology of Europe. And it's been a real privilege. As I've said, folks, we're thanking people all through the, uh, the week. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Tom wrapping up a trip to France and to the U.K. He was there for the elections on Sunday, headed back to New York after today's show. And, Tom, a, a real treat here to have a guest by serendipity. This is Randall Krosner, the Norman Robbins Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago, who joins us uh, this morning. Help us uh, understand how you're viewing this debate within watchers of the Federal Reserve, participants in the Federal Reserve, about the balance sheet, how the Fed is going to be able to do this uh, uh, in tandem uh, with raising rates. Uh, so uh, it is the $4.5 trillion question, because that's roughly the size of the balance sheet. Will they be able to do this in a way that doesn't cause a disruption in the markets? I'm very heartened that they have already started to discuss this and put it into the minutes from the previous, uh, the previous Fed meeting. And what's good is that starting the discussion has not caused a, uh, a disruption. Uh, a few years ago, when Ben Bernanke started the discussion about the so-called taper, that they would slowly uh, reduce the amount of asset purchases, that caused a lot of uh, tumult in the markets. So far, this hasn't, and I think that's that's a positive step. Give us uh, your sense here of, of, of what the change in personnel on the Federal Reserve is going to mean uh, for policy. And we've seen uh, Randy Quarles' name floated as a, as a potential uh, vice chair. I don't think that's been made official uh, as of yet. But we're beginning to see sort of a changeover in who's going to comprise this board of governors. How powerful a change is that going to be? Sort of what direction do you see the Fed heading in here, Randy? Well, um, certainly, as you said, we have not we don't have a lot of clarity about uh, the potential changes in the board, because within the next year, the president potentially could replace the majority of of the board, including the chair and the vice chair, uh, who are, of course, very powerful, uh, very powerful figures in making monetary policy. So until we have greater clarity for that, it's, it's hard to say um, at whether there would be radical change or not. If he were to keep Janet Yellen on, and is, he has said positive things about, uh, about Janet Yellen, then obviously I think there would be a lot of continuity, and you'll get the, the sort of process that we were describing before about the slow reduction of the, uh, the balance sheet, a very gradual reduction of the balance sheet, and a gradual increase in interest rates. That could change with uh, uh, a different chair, but um, we really don't know that yet. You know, we've had a lot of conversations about how the regulatory landscape in Washington may or may not change uh, with this new with this new president. How much of those changes could rest with the 
the Federal Reserve? How much power does the Federal Reserve have to shape uh, how how the, the financial services industry is regulated? The Fed certainly has a lot of power, uh, not independent power, because uh, there are other financial regulators that they work in concert with, but um, it uh, can be a very powerful voice for regulatory reform and regulatory change. So there are certain things that are set by Congress and the Dodd-Frank Act, and, and so uh, the Fed, as well as the other regulators, must follow those. But the actual implementation of that is largely up to the Fed and the other regulators. So there could certainly be uh, be a change. And my hunch is that if Randy Quarles were uh, to be nominated and confirmed, that there would be some changes. When it comes to how this Federal Reserve processes what may or may not happen uh, in Washington, D.C., whether or not we get a big fiscal uh, spending package, whether or not we get tax reform, how would you counsel they, they proceed? How difficult is it to forecast and plan with so many uh, unknowns, so many variables uh, when it comes to policy in Washington? No, it's always very simple. No, <laughs> certainly not. Uh, this is it's always challenging. So it's I mean, there's been a lot of emphasis on how uncertain the uh, the particular policy environment is, but it's always an uncertain policy environment. We never actually know whether there'll be shocks coming in or there could be some some changes. Now there have been discussion of some fundamental changes, but those will probably have an impact over time rather than all immediate. And so I think the Fed wisely is looking into alternative scenarios, but sort of their their kind of the main scenario that they're looking at is kind of the status quo for at least the the, the short term, Uh, and then looking at possibilities for bigger changes in the intermediate to longer term. Bobbins, professor of economics, uh, former governor of the Federal Reserve System. Randy Croster joining us on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line from Italy uh, this morning. Randy, thank you very much uh, for the time. Okay, this is a joy. We're going to massively rip up the script rip right it up. now. <laughs> Jeff Robinson is with us, who is expert on accounting and funny money. He works for a small startup bank, the Union Bank of Switzerland, UBS, here in uh, London. And he's done some work with his colleague, Eric Sheridan, who's been better than good on Snapchat. There's been a wide range of failure over the debacle known as Snapchat. Mr. Sheridan has avoided uh, the mind falls to say uh, the least. When you look at a FANG stock, mm-hmm. there's a lot of intangibles there. There's not bricks. There's not mortars. Okay. Do you trust the accounting as described on the balance sheet, whether it's the ginormous success of Alphabet or it's the struggles of a nascent Snapchat? Um from a personal perspective, I guess I don't trust anything unless I understand it and I can dive into the numbers. So the problem with accounting is a lot of the numbers need work on. So you might disclose non-GAAP metrics, GAAP metrics. You look at PP and intangibles on the balance sheet. You know, Roughly 35% of the intangible value of a company will appear on the balance sheet. The rest of it is kind of in there in the ether. So I think if you take numbers that are reported on pure face value, at some stage, and I don't think it's that far down the timeline, you're going to get your fingers burned. <coughs> Within Ow. that is the ether. I love that phrase. Mm-hmm. The, the ether that Silicon Valley plays by a different rule book. And I don't mean that mm-hmm. to tar and feather. Bloomberg 960, good morning, out in California. Early morning, I should say, out in California. But is there a different rule book for these modern tech companies and their rights offerings and all the funny shareholder 
comp that they're doing. Um, from a mechanic perspective, there's this one rule book, and that's U.S. GAAP. And, you know, U.S. GAAP has evolved over the years to become more conceptually driven. But when you've got non-GAAP metrics out there where you can report what the accounts require to report, and then you can report your take on certain metrics, and those metrics don't have a huge amount of regulation around them, yeah, there is a separate playbook to, to run against. And you're looking at the tech companies, particularly with stock-based comp, you know, if you're excluding stock-based comp from your, your numbers, you're excluding, in my opinion, salaries. So, of course, your numbers are going to look great. Let me just go back to legislation here. Mm. Uh, go full circle. Tom's ripped up the script. Let me try to paste it back to, <laughs> paste it back together here. Mm. There's been so much talk about a, a repatriation tax mm -hmm. holiday. Yeah. How do you guarantee the, the best efficacy of that? If you implement one, how do you, how do you try to, to engineer it as such so that uh, that money is going to be spent on CapEx, that's going to go to something uh, worthwhile? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, the fear is is that we repatriate this cash and it gets dividended out, buybacks happen, and, you know, we're not creating U.S. jobs and it's not getting reinvested back into the business. And you kind of you can benchmark this against the, uh, the effort in 2004 where retrospectively when they had that tax repatriation holiday, um, it didn't move the needle really on job creation and investment. So if it were me and I was running the country and I was looking at the, the legislation behind uh, cash repatriation, there would be some, mand uh, some mandated rules in there that would require a certain element of that cash to go back into the business because what's Apple going to do with $187 billion of cash it has overseas when it's generating... Well, we'd like to get you ready? in trouble this morning with yeah. the general counsel. What's Apple going to do? What's Apple going to do? What are do? they going to buy? Come on, it's only Friday. It's only Friday. Um, I don't know what they're going to buy, <laughs> but they've got, they, 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 <laughs> they have the ability to go out there and do fairly significant acquisitions. And I think from a valuation perspective, you know, the problem is we're getting all of that cash is that there's a risk that you do silly stuff. Yeah. And if you're not generating return in excess of the cost of that uh, capital, you're destroying shareholder worth. So, you know, M&A, you know, this is something that's in our thought process. You know, the problem with M&A analysis is that it's very focused on EPS accretion and a stable credit rating. Your EPS goes up, your credit remains stable. You know, these deals get stamped as being good deals. Now, you've definitely got to look at the return behind those deals and how long it takes you actually to get a return that's in excess of that cost of capital. So the cash repatriation, I think it's a phenomenally interesting thing. I think it's one of the, the few things that um, mm. there is agreement on in terms of getting this through the, uh, the passage of uh, Congress. Jeff Robinson, but, great to get your perspective yeah. on this from London. Let me ask you quickly here in the limited time yeah, that we have on. left, how similar the situation is in the U.S. when it comes to corporate tax reform to what we heard talked about and indeed anticipate uh, in France. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has said that he wants to implement new corporate tax mm -hmm. reform. Do you think the process is going to play out similarly? How difficult do you think it's going to be there? Um, I think tax reform is difficult across the board. I mean, um, French tax, you know, there's a history that goes all the way back to Napoleon when you're trying to uh, uh, unwind those rules. Um, with that level of detail, it's going to take time. It's complicated. There's a difference between tax reform and tax cuts. Yes. Tax cuts are relatively, you know, they're straightforward. They're, 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 they're politicized. They can be reversed. Tax reform, a simplification of the tax code, ultimately, you could argue, is you can have a lower tax rate with a simplified tax code that actually garners more revenue for the country. Great to speak this with you. More, yes, Wonderful. This has been great. Jeff Robinson. That's our painting. Watching paint dry no. for Friday. <laughs> Double declining balance. You don't even do. Do they still do double declining balance? Uh, yeah, in the states they do. It's part of the tax code. Double declining. Double. Oh, that's triple DB. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, listen to you. Yeah. I, just, I made that up right now, but Very I think yeah. it's right. Well, that's the Excel, the Excel code you just yeah. found. Ah. Well. When you're when you're in uh, when you're in New York, be sure you don't talk Please. to us. Jeff Robinson. Thank you so <laughs> right, much with UBS right, on accounting. Can't wait to do this again. Futures negative four. Dow futures negative twenty four. This is Bloomberg from London, from New York. Wilbur Ross has been an awfully good friend of Bloomberg Surveillance. We have spoken to him many times. Of course, he is a financier. He is a tycoon, almost in a 19th sense. He has been hugely generous to his Yale University. And I must say, David Gura, Mr. Ross was way early in support of Mr. Trump. He was, uh, absolutely. Uh, Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, announcing last night a new agreement with China to promote market access for American natural gas, financial services, uh, and beef uh, that the uh, the secretary said is part of a broader effort here to begin reshaping that trade relationship uh, with the two world's largest economies. Uh, let's go now to Wilbur Ross in conversation with our colleagues on Bloomberg Daybreak Americas. I want to go into the substance of the deal, but before that, take me to the process, because I've been around some t- trade deals. They tend to take a long time, and this is really pretty fast. At the same time, you didn't have a special trade representative. Who did this deal? Did you do it personally? Well, I did, and Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, were the co-heads of the economic dialogue. But really, a lot of the work was done by Wendy Taramoto, my chief of staff. So, so into the substance of the deal, uh, we know that it covers a wide range of topics, as I say, from liquid natural gas to beef to financial services. Uh, at the same time, if you take these all together, how material are they in terms of the trade deficit with China right now? Well, I think they're material in three regards. The first regard is, as you pointed out in your introduction, trade arrangements are normally denominated in multiple years. This one, this first set, has been denominated in tens of days. So there's a huge difference in how rapidly we got something done. Second, these are quite specific transactions with quite specific dates. Essentially, all of these things are scheduled to start on July 16th. In the world of trade, July 16th is a wink and a blink. And I think that's important for the third reason. We have a lot more issues to deal with with the People's Republic of China. And I believe that the fact that we got these long-standing aggravations out of the way so quickly augurs well for the relationship pattern going forward. But we have many, many more issues, and so the next task will be figuring out a one-year plan and then with some data points in between, some deliverables in between. And then once we get through the one-year plan with success, then let's work into a longer-term plan. So give us a peek into that one-year plan. Should we expect a series of these sorts of deals coming out over the next year, or is it a different approach? Well, we hope to have deliverables. I think one of the historic problems with trade is that it's become a kind of long-term debating society rather than something that was results-oriented. Both the Chinese government and we have become very results-oriented. And if we can keep that going, we'll get a lot done. 
Well, as you suggest, sir, the, the things you addressed in this one are things that have been simmering for some time, and now you've resolved them, it appears. What's next on your list? Well, as you know, it's, even when I was in the private sector, it wasn't my habit to speculate on what comes next. I'm much more comfortable announcing things as we actually accomplish them. And I think between now and, and the end of the year, we will hopefully have more announcements about actual accomplishments. So, so to give a sense, and I know you don't like to say what's going to come next, I have to ask you what comes next nonetheless. Sure. But give us some sense of the, the scope and the magnitude of what you hope to accomplish over that one-year period of time that you just said is your plan. Well, there are all kinds of sectors that have not yet been addressed. So the methodology that we'll use is the same one we did here. The Chinese submitted their wish list. We submitted our wish list. We decided which of those items from the two lists were achievable within a very finite period of time. That's what we focused on. So now the question is, what time frame do we put on the issues that we didn't yet address? And so those talks will begin probably over the weekend. So the skeptics, Secretary, are going to say, look, you've got a $347 billion trade deficit with China. Exporting more beef and LNG isn't going to close the gap. So what's going to be on the agenda that will? Well, it's a whole variety of things. But the gap is not just a gap. The gap is made up of hundreds and hundreds of different little items. And therefore, there's not going to be one silver bullet that suddenly tricks, takes our trade deficit from the 300-odd billion to zero. That's not the way it's going to work. Are you trying to get it to zero, Secretary? No, I'd, we'll get it as far as we can. But the important thing is, as we accomplished here, we want to do it by increasing total trade and by increasing the ability of our companies to export. That's the A number one objective, because that's what will create more jobs here. Number two is the trade deficit itself. Yeah. And that's the way we want to help solve that is with the beef. Beef, as you know, is a $2.5 billion market that we've been effectively precluded from. Your guess is as good as mine as to what market share we'll get. But symbolically, beef has been a big, big irritant for the agriculture community here because that fussing around has been going on for way more than a decade. Secretary Ross, the, the objective of your administration has been stated as quite clear, is to make trade fairer. The agreements with China, though, are, are meant to be win-win agreements. And I pick out a sector like the autos, and I wonder how you guys can come to a win-win arrangement when at the moment it's win-win for China and lose-lose for the United States. Give me an idea of how you can approach that situation that is a win-win for both countries. Well, you can't take things in isolation, but the fact is that none of our trade deficit comes from China exporting automobiles to the U.S. There's an issue about the parts coming in and parts coming in from elsewhere through NAFTA and through other loopholes, but the Chinese do not actually sell cars here, so that's not the problem. Where our car deficit comes is much more with Europe with Japan and with South Korea. Uh, we want to welcome once again our Bloomberg TV and radio audience. We, we are speaking with Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross. Now, Mr. Secretary, um, uh, with respect to China specifically, does this indicate a different approach which essentially takes off the table the currency manipulation question? 
Well, the currency manipulation question, for the moment at least, has been resolved. Currency manipulation is the function of the Treasury Department, not Commerce, and Congress has laid out very specific criteria as to what constitutes currency manipulation and what does not. The Chinese, by that definition, are not currency manipulators at this point in time, and that's why Secretary Mnuchin issued the order that he did. Now, that can change over time, but the more important thing is bring, how do we bring jobs back, how do we make the gross domestic product grow faster, and how do we reduce the trade deficits. So there are myriad ways of trying to do that. A lot will be in goods, some will be in services. And we started on that here with the credit cards. The U.S. credit card companies had effectively been boxed out of China. All the electronic payment systems people had been. Now we've gotten that pretty well fixed. U.S. financial service firms had not been licensed to underwrite bonds or to clear bonds. Now that's getting fixed. So in addition to agriculture, in addition to natural gas, we also began in the services sector. But there's a lot more to do there, particularly the digital economy and a lot of other both financial and non-financial services. Services, as you know, have become a huge part of our economy and a huge part of our international commerce. Mr. Secretary, um, you now made a specific step forward with China. Does that free you up a bit to move on NAFTA, and particularly with respect to Mexico? Last time you and I spoke, we talked about when you would get moving with NAFTA. What does that timetable look like? Well, I'm hoping it'll be quite imminent. As you might have noticed, the Senate yesterday finally confirmed my friend Bob Lighthizer as the United States Trade Representative. Some people in the Congress had been very reluctant to grant us the provisions of the 90-day letter until we had a Senate-confirmed U.S. trade rep. Well, he was confirmed last night. I believe he'll be sworn in on Monday, and I expect he and I will be making the rounds of Capitol Hill the early part of next week. I did notice that confirmation. I was going to ask you about that, because I know that you've worked with him before. I know that you're close. Is that going to pick up the pace as a practical matter? Because as we know, Mr. Lighthizer has a bit of experience in negotiating trade deals. Well, Lighthizer is a wonderful addition to the U.S. trade rep position and to the overall effort to adhere to the president's agenda and fix our trade problems. So, so, so finally, Mr. Secretary, I'm going to ask you something that may be a bit outside your jurisdiction, but you know about it and you care about it. And that is a report now that, uh, that your colleague, Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, is urging regulators to take a look at the Volcker rule and how they might amend that way that's being enforced. Is that essential to the deregulatory effort with respect to financial services? Well, I think you ought to address Secretary Mnuchin on that topic. I think that there are some things about the Volcker rule that probably should be changed, but I'm very busy with what is within <laughs> my jurisdiction. I'm not going to go poaching on other people's. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, 
You can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.